Welcome to the Be Seen, Be Loved podcast. I'm your host, Christy Love. I believe in taking massive action to overcome life's biggest challenges because I know the rewards that lie on the other side. This show is a weekly dose of inspiration and motivation to help you level up in your life. Here's to a new you where your dedication, commitment, and staying true to yourself will make your wildest dreams come alive. I'm a transformational trainer, speaker, firm mama, and proud wife to a distinguished Navy SEAL. We believe in the motto, never give up, never quit, while doing it all with love. I'll share real talks with experts and thought leaders who offer proven strategies to turn your barriers into success in this unfiltered, transformational, and thought-provoking podcast. Let's do this. In today's episode, we meet an exceptional man and extraordinary entertainer, Bobby Hedgeland-Tater. Bobby has worked on Broadway where he's trained Tony Award winners. He's a type rope trainer. He has worked in the circus. He has numerous theatrical credits and he is a professional actor and choreographer. And most recently an author and can tell you all about that. But today he's going to share his highs and his lows with us and how to thrive through it all. So let's welcome Bobby to the Be Seen, Be Loved podcast. Hi, Bobby. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited you're here. Oh my goodness, I was reading your bio and this, I said, this guy has to be on my show. He is absolutely extraordinary. I didn't have to see anything else because the, the work that you've done shows it all. I mean, it's like, does he, can he speak? Oh, he's been on Broadway. <laughs> is he entertaining? Oh, he's, you know, he's been in the circus. You're, you're everything actually. And an author too. So share yeah. us your journey. I mean, you've done a lot. So let us know all, a little bit about Bobby. Well, I like to consider myself the most health, uh, the multi-hyphenated artist because I was a trapeze artist, an actor, a dancer, a singer, an acrobat, an impressionist, an author, officiant, aerial, aerial sequence choreographer, a stand-up comic, a mixologist, a teacher, and a coach. So it's like you throw all those in and you put them in a, in a bowl and you get Bobby Hedgeland Taylor. And I've done so many things creatively with my life and, I, and I'll always be an artist. And I think that that's the, the, the guts of everything that I do, that no matter what comes along, I've been able to translate my, my, just my soul into different art forms. You know, being and, and also like most recently becoming an author. Now I'm not a writer, I'm not an editor, and I'm certainly not a chef, but I wrote a cookbook. So with all of that, you know, that came through with the pandemic and things, I was, you know, we were all thrown for a loop last year. And one year ago yesterday, Broadway shut down and theater shut down across the country. Businesses, schools closed. Everybody was shelter in place in New York City. So I was stuck at home. And on the 11th of March, they had stopped visitations to nursing homes. And my mother was in, living in a nursing home for, for five years. She had lived with me for two, and then it just became too much for me. And um, we found the perfect facility for her, and uh, she was thriving there. She was doing well. Um, but starting in February, she wasn't doing well health-wise. She started to get sick. And then by March, she was on and off, in and out of the, the emergency room. So I would go sit with her, because sometimes it would be 18 hours before they would get 
her in and out because she had so many different things that they wanted to check depending on why she was there. Mm. So I would talk and she had dementia, but she still remembered these very funny family stories verbatim. My first words, just different things about our family. We had a pig. I was raised on a farm and we had a pig named Lucky. And so Lucky would actually come into the house and sit by the fireplace. He was a trained pig. And we called him Lucky because he was the only male pig in the pen. And so, so that's, so they're like these little nuggets that came out of talking to my mom. And she knew who I was, but she didn't know what time it was of the year, of the year or she, she, she couldn't understand what year it was. And people that were past, she thought were still with us. So it was tough because I had to go through that. And, but and you, and you, you know, never correct somebody who's dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's. You try to just go along with what they're saying so that they feel safe. Because sometimes it can be very shocking when they realize that they've been believing that somebody's been around, like my dad and my grandmother have been gone for almost 30 years, but she still thought they were here. So we talked and I started writing these stories down. And then, you know, she started talking about food and I was and just mesmerized by chatting with her. And then the lockdown happened and then the shutdown happened. And then 11 days later, mom passed. There was no COVID testing at that time, but we were pretty sure that she had COVID because the very next day on March 22nd, I woke up with 104 fever. I woke up uh, with headache, body aches, and I couldn't smell or taste anything. And it was, I had COVID. So the day after losing my mother, I'm still, you know, you're going through this grief process, but then there's this pandemic that's starting to kill people and the sirens going past my house every 20 minutes because I live in Queens, New York, which is the epicenter of the outbreak. And people don't realize what that was like living in the epicenter. So it got to be very scary. We, it took two hours to get into a, a grocery store or a drugstore. You had to wait outside and you only had a certain amount of time in there before they would kick you out. So it was very scary. And people they were like, stay home, don't go out shelter in place we you know we absolutely need you to stop going anywhere unless it's a necessity unless you're an essential worker and then i started to feel better a little bit because a good friend of mine had sent me a a box overnight of these medicinal herbs from a farm in upstate new york and there were things like immunity immunity enhancers and uh, there was a thing called fire cider which i'd never had before which is pretty powerful stuff But within three days, my fevers were gone, my headaches were gone, and I started to feel better. Because all of those things really kicked my immune system back into shape. So with that, when I started to have these moments of clarity, I was like, I had this idea for a cookbook for a long time. And I had this idea for a family memoir, just detailing all of the crazy things that that came along when I was, you know, when I was growing up, because I, I was born into a very, how shall I say it, dysfunctional Italian family. So raised on a mountaintop in Pennsylvania. And the the book title came to me right away because my great grandfather had 13 children. And my grandfather bought a plot of land and then my great grandfather followed. And so on top of this mountain, all of my great grandfather's 13 children settled around him. So it was this the top of a mountain with nobody but my family. There was no rel- There was no neighbors that weren't relatives. Like across the street was Aunt Jenny, Uncle Frank, Uncle Billy, Uncle Joey. It's just like huh? you were surrounded and insulated by the family. But it got the nickname Ravioli Mountain because everyone was Italian and everyone was related. 
So I named the book Escape to Reality. What's that? I was going to ask you that question. What's the name of the book? Oh, so the book is called Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food, recipes and amusing anecdotes from growing up in a dysfunctional Italian family on a mountaintop in rural Pennsylvania. Awesome. So it's a mouthful. (laughs) And I wanted the title to be a mouthful because- That is interesting. That is interesting. Wow, you grew up there. Yeah, I grew up there and it was a, it was a tough, it was a tough upbringing, but you know, we were, we were, we were poor, but my mom never let us know we were poor. Right. She did everything she could to mask that and make sure that Christmas was special. Every holiday was special. Because the stories that your mom shared with you. <laughs> having the I don't know how, I, well, uh, there, some of them are pretty, pretty blue. Um, I don't know what your listeners would be appreciative of or what I can say, but the one about my first words was probably the funniest of all of them. I don't know if you bleep this out, but my first words were fucking reindeer. Um, <laughs> well, where'd so, you get that from? From my mom. She told me the story first. Italian family. And and my grandmother, I remember my grandmother telling the story as well. So basically, my mother always bought two of everything because my brother and I were very close in age. And she almost dressed us like twins sometimes because we always had identical shirts, identical pants. Even all of our school pictures growing up, we had the same shirt. She knew when when, 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 when uh, picture day was, and we wore, she got the same shirt. We both wore the same shirt. We both got all the pictures with her. And so, so we get there uh, to, to, you know, we, I, I get to talking to mom about it and she's like, yes, you're, you know, you, I wouldn't speak when I was, was a toddler and they kept thinking I was just, I couldn't hear or I wasn't able to speak, but I was just terrified. You know, the way, that's the way I look at it. I was just terrified. I was a, uh, I was a very terrified child. So my mother bought two of everything. So at Christmas time, there were two inflatable reindeer that you put beside the Christmas tree. And we, we, you know, we were toddlers. So, you know, you see a big inflatable reindeer, you're going to think, oh, I can ride it. So we both jumped on one and of course it popped. And then we fought, we started fighting over the other one. So my mother runs into the living room like a ninja, grabs the reindeer, give me that fucking reindeer, throws it in the closet, puts us in our separate chairs in timeout, and then goes back to finishing dinner. So we hear, you know, we're, we're like, you know, it's like a shootout on a John Wayne movie. We're both probably staring at each other, crying and grumbling because our reindeer was taken away from us. So we hear my grandmother's car pull up. And I know, and in my head, I'm sure I was thinking, I, I, I want my reindeer. And I know my grandmother will help me get it because my grandmother's superhuman. So I run to the door and my brother runs to the door. We, I see my grandmother, I grab her skirt and I tug her skirt and I point to the closet. Nana, Nana, fucking reindeer, fucking reindeer. <laughs> and those are your and those first words. First words, oh, no. absolutely. And it's, and it's funny because like I had to, to go through these stories and people are like, yep, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. I'm like, okay, I didn't make it up. Mom's dementia didn't make it up. This is actually a family legend and a family story. The other one that's not quite as blue, but I basically we were at a family outing at my Aunt Betty's house. I went missing as a toddler, completely disappeared. So they were terrified. They were searching everywhere. They were looking in the woods. They were driving up and down the road, you know, and there, this was a time when, you know, you have a group of people together and it just want you turn your back and toddler's gone. So they're looking through and I was in diapers, so I didn't need the bathroom. So they didn't bother to look in the house. But what they also didn't bother to look for was that all the family dogs were missing with me. 
So my aunt Betty comes running into the house, goes upstairs, checks all the rooms, comes downstairs, sees the dogs under the table. And there's little toddler Bobby with 12 dogs and a pound of butter. And we're eating the butter together under the, under the table. Oh, no. so, the, so these are the, and I'm like, I still do that. No, um, <laughs> but, but um, no, I'm teasing. I do love butter, but that's another story. But like, those are the little nuggets of memories that I, that, that got me through it. And wow. when I, you know, I, I know that language is, 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 is hard for some people, but hearing my mother tell me that story, mm-hmm. it was so, it was so soothing and healing. We laughed and that took the, the, it took the angst out of the room, even though we're sitting in the ER at the beginning of a pandemic. And she told me that story and it just was, it was just this release because you have to laugh through everything, no matter how hard things are, you have to find a way to laugh. And I laughed through all these stories and I started writing and I, I would write every single day. And I'm, like I said, not a writer, not an editor, not a chef, but I know how to cook. I know how to write and I'll, I'll pay an editor. <laughs> so, but I, I really took the time to revisit those stories because it brought her back to me. It brought that, that essence of my mom back to me. And it took away this fear that was surrounding me. Every time an ambulance would pass by, I would think, is it my turn? And I was turned away from the ER. I was turned away from urgent care because I could breathe, because I wasn't critical. Even though as sick as I was, I wasn't as sick as some of the people that were dying in the hallways in New York City. And the world has been through a the lot hardest part too. last year. Yeah. Walking through to get to the emergency room at that time they had just started building the makeshift morgues on the sidewalk because there was no room in the morgue in the hospital and walking up seeing you know seeing the next body be wheeled out it was just it was it was traumatizing because we didn't know at that time what was going on and then you know there were so many rumors swirling it was right in the very beginning but i got better and I brought my mom back to life with those funny yeah. stories. Yeah. And they're all in the book. They all lead into each chapter. There's little nuggets about my aunts, about my dad, my grandmother. My grandmother was a very funny lady as well. Four foot 11 and her hair was five foot seven because she, <laughs> she, she braided it and piled it up on her head. Typical Italian, very Sicilian woman. You know, and, and my book, the way I like to describe it is Moonstruck meets a Christmas story. So you get the Italian family and the absurdity and the farcical stories of A Christmas Story. And then the recipes, the recipes are, are all family recipes, but then I put a spin on it. Every recipe has a vegetarian and vegan option for different diets and also a gluten-free suggestion. So even if you don't eat meat or you can't find you know, certain types of meat that you put into different bolognese, you can totally make any of these vegetarian and or vegan. So I like to throw that in there that, you know, I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania and this is how we lived. But uh, it also was the way that we survived the winters because we, whatever the garden gave us was in the freezer or was canned. And whatever the farm gave us in livestock was in the freezer. And, or, you know, if there was, uh, um, if, there, if anybody was lucky enough to uh, go deer hunting, then there was deer. If there was bear season, sometimes there was a bear. And, but because we lived in this little insular group on top of a mountain, I'd be at my grandmother's house and then the phone would ring and it'd be my uncle Frank. And he'd say, Hey, Franny, do you want the hind quarter? Or you want the shoulder? I just shot a six point buck. 
And then within a couple of hours or the next day, butcher paper would show up filled with whatever he was sharing that deer with the family. I've grown a little bit more away from eating meat. I, I still do, but as not as much. But back then, that's that's how that's how I was raised. That's just what that was just life at that point. Of all of those in your story, I want to ask you a question. Sure. How does someone like I'm going to go back to your childhood, mm-hmm. go from a terrified child to walking on a tightrope, tightrope, <laughs> becoming um, a tightrope trainer? How does that happen? You know, it was very funny, and it was and it was theater based too because. In the 80s, I was just doing, I came to New York. I went to acting school. I went to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy on full scholarship. I had done four years of college at the East Stroudsburg University. And I just, I wanted to live in New York. So I moved here. I started doing theater. I started doing summer stock. I was going out, doing different shows, tap dancing. You know, we did everything we could to make money. Then um, I was, I was actually ballroom dancing at Mama Leone's restaurant. And we would go into the basement that we'd have an orchestra playing and we'd get people up to dance with us. And we'd make, I think, 50 bucks a night, me and my ballroom partner. That's how we paid our rent. We did gigs and we did summer stock. But uh, a gentleman, I was bar- I was bartending and coat checking at a bar in the West Village and a gentleman showed up and we started chatting. And it turns out he was the former Broadway, Broadway dancer, worked on Broadway with Ethel Merman, with Angela Lansbury and Mary Martin. I mean, all the old time Broadway um, so he was fascinating to talk to. He's still alive. I'm not talking about him in the, but he, he's, he was an ice skating coach as well. So he said, I have this show and I think you'd be perfect for it. I love, you know, cause we had a piano bar there too. So I would sing every now and then. And he was like, you got the perfect voice for this character. And it was called the circus adventures of Toby Tyler or six or 10 weeks with the circus. It was a book, but it was a Disney film in the 1960s. So it was being musicalized and he, I was, young, skinny, had the perfect voice for it. So I sang on the recording and then they sent me to a trapeze coach. It was one trapeze coach in New York City and it was a, this private space one? on the one? Upper West Side. Only in one. All of New York. All of New York. This is 1980s. So there okay. wasn't a lot of trapeze. Now there's like 500. <laughs> but I started working with this Russian coach and she was very strict and very, very powerful, but but very motherly and sweet on the other side of that. Um, so she trained me to do tra- solo trapeze and a walking a tightrope. And so I just fell in love with it. And then within six months, I started getting work. The nightclubs would hire you to do circus acts. So there were very much flashback to the Studio 54 times where they would have, you know, somebody hanging in a moon over the dance floor, you know, and, and just posing in a pretty costume or an actual circus apparatus comes down and somebody does a trapeze act. So that's what I started doing. And I started making a lot of money doing nightclubs. There were only six aerialists in New York City at that time, myself and five women. So the women were more sought after than I was, but I would alternate with them on different nights at different clubs. There was one club ABC, Club Shine, Palladium, Webster Hall. And we could make our rent in one weekend working at these clubs. Much more than $50 a night, for sure. We would make almost $1,500 in a weekend oh, um, because yeah, you right. could bounce from club to club and make boom, boom, boom. You could make bank every, every week. Just do your act for seven minutes over the dance floor, have a different costume and, you know, and show up. And the six of us did well. 
And then we started doing teaching gigs and things like that. So, but that's how I got, that's how I got into, that's how I got into the whole theater avenue. Like theater and circus were just kind of like, they were there. I wasn't making as much money in, in, uh, in theater as I was in circus. So I'm sorry, my phone was ringing. Totally opposite actually, but okay. I didn't know that. At that time, at that time, theater was still doing, you were still getting paid well, but circus was, was a way that I stood out too. You could walk into an audition and they're, and they're, maybe they're looking for a redhead. And so there was me and maybe 12, 15 other redheads who look like me, sound like me, dance like me. But I was the only one with trapeze on my resume as a resume as my special skill and then they would stop you and say well how did you do that were you, were you born into it and i was like no i was trained for a show and now i do you know blah, 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 blah. and i you know had always carried some pictures with me so i could show them but it kept me in the room and it got me more callbacks and more jobs because i i had this other skill and then i uh you know i i started to expand and i started to open up my um uh, my world to to just include as much other art as I could. So I started training and then I, I went uh, to San Francisco. There was a circus school there. So I trained in San Francisco for a while. And then I came back to New York. Orders too. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, that didn't start until about 20, uh, about 20 years ago. So I moved back to New York and I started mixing theater and circus mm -hmm. because there were shows that were coming up that you could combine both theater and circus together. So I would take those and I would put them together and that would also get me a contract in the chorus or in the show, a contract as a trainer, and then they would rent my equipment. So I, I was perfect for it because I had the equipment, they didn't have to buy it, they, did, they just rented my equipment, they trained me, I mean, they, they, they hired me to train the cast and then they put me in the show and it's perfect to have the person who trained you in the show for safety. So it was a win-win all around. It was a win-win. And then it, the, that started to snowball. And I was doing, traveling all over the place, doing different musicals and shows. And then slowly, Broadway started to notice me. And I got called in to train someone for a musical uh, called The Frogs. And it was basically about the River Styx and the underworld in, in Greek mythology, but it was written by Stephen Sondheim. And um, so I came in to do some training for some aerial stuff. And that sort of started that part of my career. And then, you know, again, doing, doing different theater gigs, teaching people different things. And then I want to say it was 2009 when things really started to ramp up because Pink, star she, she performed at the Grammy Awards. And she did this beautiful song called Glitter in the Air. And, then, and, and everybody lost their mind mm -hmm. because she was singing upside down. She was, she was dunked into a vat of water and she was hanging from this, this amazing apparatus spinning around and, and it was stunning. But it, it emerged as, it finally put it on the map as sort of like a pop culture reference. And then I started to get more and more people messaging me and asking me to do different things. And then finally in 2013, 2012, nope, sorry, 2011, I was asked to do a new rock musical, which is still in development. I'm still working on it. Actually, we were supposed to open May 28th of 2020 off Broadway, but I've been working on it since 2011. It's been that long that it's been growing as a piece. But I, that first incarnation, I was 
the aerial sequence designer and coach, and I ran the, what we call the fly track, which was the track that brings the performer out to the stage. And I started to get noticed because I was safe. People could trust me, and I make people feel relaxed when they're doing this kind of work. And then right after that, I was asked to perform at Madison Square Garden with the band Fish. They had this idea of a flash mob where we'd come out to the floor, dance, you know, we'd come out to the floor seats and we're dancing like we're part of the, we're just part of the crew. And then they clip us in and then we float up over the audience's head. And uh, you can see it on YouTube. It's amazing. It was, it was, it was a New Year's Eve gag. You know, the, the band does this big thing at, New, at Madison Square Garden every year. And they, they surprise the audience with the New Year's Eve gag. So that year it was the flash mob with, the, with us floating up and flying and doing choreography. And we did two numbers. We did one where we just, we had these backpacks that had steam coming out of them. So we floated up and it was just kind of like, if you're in the, in the middle of a rock concert, you look up and somebody's floating over your head and steam is coming out of their backpack. You know, it's just, it was oh, really- you make it sound so easy. It's <laughs> navigating through Broadway and, and through choreography and getting positions and jobs in this environment, so simple. I know so many people who have struggled. What's different about you? Oh, Is it because you have I have, have struggled. struggled. <laughs> you have struggled. <laughs> okay. I have struggled. Trust me. There's a lot that there's a lot that I've had to go through because, you know, when you have your original version of yourself that you think you're going to be, mm-hmm. um, you origin you really do have to let go of that, and let let the world bring the bring the the person you're supposed to be to you like i was saying to you before we went live that i always try to talk to the person i'm going to be yeah in my head what would i say to that person because i know that we're gonna we're always on a journey we're always on a journey and you know i was lucky enough to get to get asked to do that show but i also was also putting in the hard work. I would work extra hours so I could train longer with my coach. She was very expensive. So I would, I would work extra hours just so I could train twice a week with her or three times a week with her. And then my aerial partner at the time, she and I would rent the only space that we possibly could to put our equipment on, which was another friend, one of the five women. She rented a loft in Williamsburg or Greenpoint and she put trapezes in her living room. And we would go there, we would rent the space, we would train for hours, and then we would go to the local diner and we would order four glasses of water, four glasses of ice water first, and put them on our hands because our hands were so raw from doing trapeze Mm -hmm. that we couldn't open the menu until we had ice in our hands. Um, But it's not not an easy path because theater is is 90% rejection and as well as a circus is 90% rejection, especially now there's so many people that are doing it. So many people are, you know, there's so many people in the industry. So everybody's got different, different uh, uh, privileges. And the one thing that I noticed is that I had to work until midnight, four o'clock in the morning sometimes, and I'd have to get up for an audition the next day. That's what people don't see. People don't see the hard work. You know, know, all the things that you've done, I'm like, wow, he's been so many different places. You know, you said you've been almost every state in the country. I will hustle. (laughs) But it takes work. It takes dedication. It takes being committed to your craft and having a vision. And reaching out. Yes, and connections. 
Yeah, I had to network a lot. And a, and a lot of things that, you know, the hardest part about networking in the circus is most, at that time, most people in the circus world were from a circus family. And it is a well-known fact that circus families do not like to share their secrets. They're like magicians. A magician never shares their secrets because then you ruined it for the audience. You want that, you want them to be mesmerized by your work. You don't want to give away your secrets. So there wasn't a lot of networking to be done because not many people were talking, they weren't sharing their secrets and they weren't passing it on to anyone but their family. So that was a tough part of the learning process was no matter how much I wanted to be in the circus world, I would never be accepted by everybody or you know, I wouldn't be asked the same way that I would as if I, if I were in a circus family, if I was born into this. So I really had to hustle. I really had to work. I really had to network because part of the networking process is making people feel comfortable with you. And you're, you're, you're showing them a video of your act, but do you know, are you safe? Have you fallen from the trapeze? Are, you know, are, what, is your, what is your work ethic? Are you gonna come to work uh, on time? You know, like there's so many different things you have to prove and reprove over and over to get people to understand who you are. And that's when I get to the Broadway part, you know, the guy that I were, the guy who built our set in 2011 remembered me and said, Hey, I have this new Broadway musical about Charlie Chaplin and we want to do a tightrope scene and we need you to train the lead actor and his understudies to walk a tightrope. And that was, I was brought in, boom. I did the work it was like two full weeks of training with this, with these people, never touched a trapeze, never touched a tightrope before and got them comfortable enough to be able to, to be able to stand on their own and walk back and forth on their own. In, you know, it turns out that from a Broadway standpoint, it's easier to make a cabled visual effect than it is to actually walk a tightrope on Broadway. There's a safety factor, but there's also, it's, it was so quick in the show that it was easier for them to mimic the tightrope and the way that the system worked than to actually have them walk a tightrope. But they still had to learn how to be on a tightrope and what it looks like. So as actors, they needed that experience. Wow, so, you're the best person for it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah they, 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 br they brought, you know, my name got out there in a way that people were like, oh yeah, you know, go to go see Bobby. Then Pippin came along. Pippin was a huge hit in 2013. I got to train Andrea Martin and uh, Patina Miller, both for that show. And uh, Patina Miller's now on, um, oh, what's the show called? I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I'll get out. Oh, oh. And then Andrea Martin's this 67-year-old comedian, who actress who's been around forever. She was famous for uh, so many things, but probably well known as the aunt in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. That's Andrea Martin, but I taught her how to do trapeze for the show. And um, yeah. So, yeah. so that was incredible. In fact, I learned more from her than I learned than she learned from me. She came to me for the physical aspect of the show, and I was you know teaching her this different skill set. She came with the lyrics to the song that she was doing, and she came with the script, and we sat on the mats for almost an hour before she even touched the aerial apparatus. And she sat on the mats and she looked, and we looked at the lyrics and we we're like, she's like, I want this to be a flashback. I want this, you know, this is a grandmother in the, in the story, but I want her to have a flashback moment to when she was in the circus. And so there's this moment, this beautiful moment where she, she takes off her robe and she's wearing a unitard underneath with a corset 
and she looks like she like she's 40, 20, 40 years old and she gets up on the trapeze and does and that's another act that you can see on youtube as well but i i was her first trainer so it was like those are the things that you get those little nuggets in life after you put in the work it's like standing in front of standing in front of your heater and screaming at it give me heat but you have to put the fuel in to get the heat right. you have to put the wood into the fireplace to get the heat and i was constantly you know, getting, getting, you know, negative responses and, 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 uh, and no's. And yes, don't take no for an answer. As far as that goes, turn it into a positive. And that's another thing that I also have taken is just when someone says no, there's, there's, you, there's always a chance to spin it and try to get as close to them as possible and see what you can do to convince them or what's next turn your energies to the next to the next thing. I also did a lot of googling and in googling I would find out if what shows were um were coming up that had the idea or the possibility of a circus element to them. And even a show like Godspell, like I was telling you before, that's not a show that traditionally has any circus in it, but there's a lot of people that have added circus elements to it. Right. So, you know, so that could be, you know, the every musical that's out there unless they're very specific dated material could include things that have different aerial aspects to them um you know it doesn't really it depends on how creative the director wants to get oh. and i've worked i worked with great directors too and i've worked with horrible directors but it's just a matter of i my job at, when i do aerial circus and theater together I say my job is to a give the director a box of chocolates, not not literally, but a box of chocolates of movements, and they get to pick and choose what they like, what makes the story arc happen. It's telling stories in the air, and I always say I get to paint with the human body, so I get to paint a story off the ground, right. um, and that can translate to the audience as turning the page of a book. Right. turning the page of the story but elevating it in in literal terms uh with a circus apparatus or with uh cabling however you know i get to do that that's like that's the fun that part of my job that sounds like the funnest job i've ever heard of in my entire life and career and career as well well bobby can you leave our listeners with three nuggets they can take with them today. You've talked about two that I know of. Turn your nose into yes. That's a great one. And yes. also speak to yourself. Is there another? Speak to your future self. <laughs> Have a conversation with your future self. Well, also, I myself, so I start, start talking to my future self. <laughs> I, I write a lot now. And right. I also okay. I write anything and everything. And also I use my cell phone auto dictation. That's how I wrote most of my book. I would auto dictate the story that was coming through. Then you have to send it to yourself and then you really have to edit it line by line because we all know that autocorrect is never what we intend. So sometimes you have to read it before you send it because sometimes it'll just, oh, not, it just won't come, yeah. just won't translate. There've been times when I've done that and I've just hit send. And then I look at the sentence, and I'm like, I don't know what I was saying here. So then I would have to omit it. But I think that when you go back and look at it again uh, before you send, just double check to make sure you're 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 speaking clearly and not not rattling things off. Also, um, what's that? 
I think I learned that the hard way. I, I wrote quite a bit of my book by vocalizing it on auto dictation and found it was just a bunch of gibberish. <laughs> yeah, it's tough because, oh, yes. you know, it's new, it's newer technology, you know. And that was another thing, like when I was started, in, when I started in the circus world, we didn't have cell phones. Oh, I no. didn't have a cell phone. There was no cell phone. Much easier nowadays, right? No. Yeah. Now you have, you can video yourself. You can, you know, you can do all of that. But back mm -hmm. in the, back in the day, we didn't have that. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Instagram. So um, all of that, but um, writing anything and everything, taking notes on life is important. And uh, the thing that I do, that's a technique called mind mapping. And what mind mapping is, is when you have an idea, put it into one word or one or two words, write that in with a pen, with an actual pen, write that word in the center of a page. And then everything that comes to your mind, write in a circle around that word or words in the center. And that's how I got the title of my book. That's how I got the title of some chapters. I remember I, write, I wrote Antipasto, which was a chapter, Antipasto, as we say in Italian. And then I remembered my aunts. So I changed the title of the, the second chapter to Antipasto, A-U-N-T-I-E, Pasto. Because all of my aunts, uh, were, they, were in, they were influential in creating life with the family, but they also were, um, they created the most amazing spread of food. And it was always the antipasto. There was roasted peppers, there was jardinera. There was all kinds of things on the table that they put together. So when I think of my aunts, I think of the antipastos. So that became a chapter. Dinner at your family's house? Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so, so the, the third thing yeah. would be, well, first talk to your future self, write anything and everything. Take a look at the book, The Artist's Way. That's a really good book as far as just, it doesn't, you don't have to be any, it can be any kind of an artist and you can still help. And then mind mapping has really been a huge help for me. Awesome. So, and, and uh, you know, when my book is published, check it out. It's called Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. And uh, I'm looking at publishing in the summer. When it gets launched, I will certainly- Oh, you will. <laughs> I can. And I definitely look forward to reading it and preparing some of those yummy, yummy meals, right? Yes. There are, there are a lot of really good recipes. Story to your family. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bobby, for being on the BC and We Love podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Be Seen, Beloved podcast. For more inspiring conversations, please share with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or feedback, you can reach me directly at beseenbelovedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.